So as I said, today we celebrate Palm Sunday, and that is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, like Kristen just read, at the beginning of Passover, commemorating the time that, that God sent 10 plagues on Egypt to, uh, in order to free the Israelites from slavery 1,440 years earlier. The last plague is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. By the way, this morning there's no slides. That's the only slide because I really want you to listen and not look. All right? But the last plague is recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, which says this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So there's this cosmic battle between the gods of Egypt or the false gods of Egypt and Yahweh, the true God of the universe. And then it continues, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now, to what blood is he referring uh, well, in uh, preparation for this Passover, four days before, every family in Israel was to set aside a perfect lamb, and they were to slaughter it, and they were to mark the lintels in the doorpost, just like this one. Made this in my backyard this week. Uh, of their homes with its blood, right? And up until midnight of Passover, they were to consume that whole lamb, leaving nothing. Passover broke the resolve of Pharaoh, and he finally let Israel go from, the, from their slavery. They left Egypt so quickly at that time that there wasn't enough time to allow baked bread to rise, uh, thus flat unleavened bread was used, and, it, and it's a reminder of their rapid departure, sort of like the matzah that we use on, at communion every month. Exodus 12, verse 11, even gives instructions on how to eat this Passover meal. It says, this is how you were to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, because you can't really walk too well with your cloak tied around your feet, right? So you tuck it in your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So they're to eat it ready to leave immediately. Up until this time, they've been captive, right? God sent nine plagues thus far. Pharaoh has not let them go yet. And then God sends this final plague, killing all the firstborn of Egypt. And the Israelites were to paint their doorposts of their homes with the blood of a perfect lamb, this sacrificial lamb as their protection. As God passes over their homes at that time, Seeing that blood, he spares the firstborn of that household. So safe inside their homes, the Israelites were to hear or to, were to eat the, the whole sacrifice, right? They're to use unleavened bread since the exodus will happen quickly and they've got to be ready to leave. They've got to be ready for this new journey, this new life, this rebirth, so to speak. Yearly, they commemorated this in a week-long celebration of Passover, still do. And in this setting, Jesus enters and foreshadows himself as the final perfect Passover lamb. This has everything to do with understanding who Jesus is and this Easter season, right? 
So Jesus enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey at the beginning of Passover. Whispers of him as promised Messiah, promised Savior are rampant throughout that crowd. Thoughts of the exodus, you know, from Egypt and freedom are in their minds. Naturally, they're hoping that this Messiah, this Savior, would deliver them from Roman oppression as God delivered them from Egypt 1,440 years earlier. And the imagery doesn't go unnoticed. A conquering king would ride into a city on the back of a donkey as a symbol of his coming in peace, but conquering nonetheless. The more aggressive symbol would have been on the back of a horse, but Jesus comes in humble authority. And people are shouting. you got to place yourself right there, right? People are shouting. They're laying their cloaks on the road you know, before him. They're waving palm branches, laying them down. And this is all symbolic of their Messiah King. The hopes that they expressed in him were not at all vague, shouting words of Psalm 118. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Messiah had come to free them from Roman oppression. That was their expectation. And usually avoiding ostentation, Jesus allowed this celebratory display for two reasons. Maybe more, but at least two. Firstly, it was prophesied uh, about this, right? Prophecy fulfilled that he would be presented as Israel's king. As expressed in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Secondly, the timing was very important. Because the religious leaders had decided that they they were going to arrest and kill him after Passover, not during, because they wanted to avoid a riot. But it seems that only Jesus knew, even after all the things that he had told his disciples, that he would be slain as the perfect lamb during this Passover, this particular Passover, right? So timing was paramount. It was very important. John the Baptist got it, if you remember that. Well before this, upon seeing Jesus, he had said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is an unmistakable reference to the Passover Lamb. Up until now, every attempt to arrest Jesus before this time had failed since his hour had not yet come. Now he marches himself right into the hands of those who would kill him in perfect timing, accepting the worship of kingship while on the back of a donkey in this spontaneous coronation ceremony. Jesus, in other words, was in total control of the situation. You got to understand that. Total control of the situation. He was leading this crowd into his own death to paint the picture of himself as the Passover lamb, the final Passover lamb, their salvation, slain in payment for their sin, to cover them. The hope of their celebration was peace. There can't be peace, though, until God reigns fully. 
which first means division. That's why Jesus said to the disciples before Passover, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, in other words, his crucifixion, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give, to, to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. We like to talk about peace a lot, but he came to bring division too. The appeal of Christ wasn't that they would find peace through overthrow of, of Rome as expected. There would be no new exodus this day, at least and not, not that kind of a, you know, exodus. Rather, if they had listened, if they had heard his words, if they had read the signs leading up until now, they would find peace with God through his sacrifice as Passover lamb. So the appeal is ultimately reconciliation with God. And we know that in Egypt, God judged the sin of people, right? Yet, as the angel uh, passed over, the blood on the doorpost and the lintels averted that angel of death in Egypt. And the blood of Christ will cover the sins of people and open up the door to peace and reconciliation with God in the same way. God's judgment upon sin is death. It is, because they cannot reside together, but it would pass over them as they receive this final sacrifice of the great and final Passover lamb. And as they sit there and they rejoice in faulty notions of peace, we get a glimpse of Jesus' heart back in Luke 19 after he's ridden in on the donkey. This day was not celebratory for him. It says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground." you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's referring to the future destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in, in uh, AD 70, right? When Rome would kill 600,000 Jews and he would take many more thousands captive, you know, all because the people wouldn't notice that God had visited them on this day. So death looms for them in the future and death looms for Jesus in the near future so he is distressed. He knows that many of the same people who shout blessed is the king today will turn and shout crucify him tomorrow. The one true king bringing peace and reconciliation with God by covering over their sin had ridden into the city on the back of a donkey in humble authority. The great and last Passover lamb had come who takes away the sin of the world. And when the temple was destroyed, later on the whole sacrificial system went away because there was no need for foreshadowing any longer right when the final passover lamb had already been sacrificed why do you need all the foreshadowing you don't need it anymore the deal was already done 
for anyone who would come under the covering of his blood, allowing the judgment of God to pass over their lives. So Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. He knows so many have false expectations that day, and they wouldn't recognize the real visitation of God. You remember God had sent Jonah to Nineveh, and Jonah had expected God to destroy it, wanted God to destroy it, but he knew he wouldn't. God wanted to save it. God entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, right? And they expected him to break the back of Roman oppression, but God came to save the Romans as well. Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps. Since Jerusalem destroys itself, by not embracing the moment of God's visitation. He wept because he extends the greatest of gifts and people would simply throw it back in his face. There's a story of a young man in a wealthy family graduating high school and customarily kids, like many of the kids on the main line here, get a car for graduation. And he and his dad went around and they, they looked for the perfect car and they found it, but he wasn't sure that his dad would actually follow through on the promise. And after graduation, his dad handed him a gift and he unwrapped it in great expectation, right? And it was a Bible, not a set of car keys. And the boy threw the Bible back at his father and he left the house in a rage, never to see his father again. And upon his father's passing, years later, he returned to go through his belongings. And finding that Bible, he thumbed through the pages to find a cashier's check. Dated for the date of his graduation, sorry. And the exact amount of the car that he had wanted. He had not received the gift given his own expectations. Right? And that's what these people would do to Jesus this day. And it's what many still do today. John 1.11 says this. He came unto his own and his own received him not. That's a sad statement. Then in Luke 19, Jesus predicts their betrayal in a parable about a leader who went away to be crowned their king in a distant place, leaving the people with a financial gift to steward while he was gone. And as he was away, the people sent a delegation in front of him saying, we will not have this man reign over us as king. And he was pronounced king nonetheless, but since some didn't regard him as such, they did nothing with the gift that he had left. Jesus told that parable just before his triumphal entry. Jesus would be going away to his death, but he would return again as king. Will he find them to cherish and to nurture that gift or to disregard it totally? Jesus weeps. His darkened demeanor juxtaposed with all this shallow celebration around him. And after staying in Bethany that evening, he comes into the city early the next morning. And it was that morning that he had cursed the fig tree, if you remember that, right? Jesus had reason to be upset. Not only can he see the shallowness of all these people, but he walks into God's temple that is right now only used for, for profit and for greed. 
And it says this, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, what angered him so much? Well, he was quoting Isaiah there, who had said, Actually, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, right? For all people groups of the world. And the temple was a place of worship, and it was a place of meeting God. And the court of Gentiles in the front of the temple was the only place in the, new, in the temple available to the Gentile nations. It was in the court of the Gentiles that Israel could invite the Gentiles in and share the love of, and the glory of God with them. Yet instead of being a place to love people into the kingdom of God, they were using it for selfish gain. This is the second time that he had cleansed the temple. The first being in the beginning of his ministry recorded in John chapter 2. And it was at that time that the leaders had asked him by what authority did he drive people out. And if you remember, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And it wasn't after, until after he rose from the dead that his disciples understood exactly what he meant. He wasn't speaking of the temple building. He was speaking of his own body, his own life. So we have to see that everything that Jesus said and did during this time was leading up to his sacrifice as the Passover lamb, and he knew it. Jesus remained in the temple that day uh, teaching the word of God and religious leaders tried to destroy him but his hour had not yet come it says and in the days which followed they argued with him they tried to trap him but you know they all failed but when the time was just right he would surrender himself and they would crucify him he would face his enemies and go to the cross and die as the final Passover lamb for the sin of the world And in the midst of all this haughtiness and false celebration and greed and power play and misuse of the temple and disregard for God's missional heart for the world and all the peoples of the world and the shallowness of these people, Jesus weeps knowing that they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Yet still, he would face the cross Submitting to its pain and its agony for the sake of everyone. He knew the hearts of people, right? He knew it. While everybody celebrates, he weeps, longing for people to recognize the gift of God riding in on a donkey that day. He longed for them to take their eyes off of Roman oppression and put it on himself, the greater gift that is him. His passion is shown leading up to the cross, cursing the fig tree, driving people out of the temple, weeping over the city, uh, sweating blood at the Garden of Gethsemane. The haughty, self-centered heart throws the Father's gift back at at him and leaves the house, doesn't it? But the broken, contrite heart receives from the Lord only to find that there is more to the gift than they could ever imagine as they thumb through the pages. Everybody's got expectations, right? Jesus is surrounded by people, many of which are just asking, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? 
Like ignorant children playing in the sandbox when dad is promising a, a, a trip to the beach, right? Jesus gave all he had in his gift to humanity. All he had. And these people would not listen or heed the signs. So the question is, will we recognize his gift and receive it today? Or will we open the package and throw it back in his face? Will we sit down at the Passover meal and ingest every bit of who Jesus is or eat only the parts that we like about Jesus, leaving the rest to waste? To come at him with our own expectations and to turn on him a few days later when he doesn't actually meet them. Will we realize that by his death, he is crowned king, Lord of heaven and Lord of earth. And we are to steward his gift while he's away. To nurture it, to make it grow within us and to bring it in, out to others to share it with them, recognizing the urgency of this message. Because people die every day. Taking in the gift of Jesus right now with our cloaks tucked in our belts, our sandaled feet, staff in hand, eaten in haste, because the time of salvation is right now. He calls you to a new life. Get ready to go. Will we give everything that we have because he gave everything he had? Monthly, we celebrate communion, right? Every month, a, a version of the Passover meal. And we celebrate his sacrifice as the Passover lamb by symbolically drinking the blood and the, eating the flesh of Christ. And in some traditions, the priest will eat and drink all of the leftover bread and wine, symbolically taking in all of Christ for the church. Maybe we should do that here. He summons some of you today, some of you, and I don't know who you are, to recognize the gift of the Passover lamb in your life for the very first time. You've come here, you've heard the words, you like the community, you like the friends, you like the warmth. You say, I need a community like this. Church isn't that bad. Great. You may even believe there's a God. You, you might even want to be a good person, and maybe this will help. But you've never considered what Jesus really means. And eventually, you will be confronted with this guy, this historical man, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No other avenue to eternal life with God is there out there other than Jesus Christ. You've never considered that, that everything in this story of God, in the history of mankind, has led you to this moment. Maybe God has led you here this morning, this week, this Passover, this Easter. You've never considered your own sin, and what, which, which, which he has paid for, right? That you need salvation, just like me and them and everybody else. You've never considered your own spiritual poverty, which only Jesus can erase. The fact that you could be one of those people that's not really listening. Not really seeing the signs that he reveals. And this is your moment with Jesus right now. I had that moment 
way back when. I'm kind of older. This community revolves around Jesus as Lord and Savior. The reason that we do what we do and we are what we, or who we are. And it doesn't matter how good or bad you are. It really doesn't. It only matters that you recognize it and you take Jesus in as your sacrifice, as your king, reconciling your life with God the Father. And if that's you, do it now. It is urgent. Don't wait. Do it in haste. Say to him in your heart, right this moment, I want all of you, Jesus. I accept your sacrifice for me. Because if you don't do it, it could be too late. And the offer is on the table right at this moment. He summons others of you in this room to courage and faith as we await our king's return. You've known him for years. You've celebrated a thousand Passovers maybe. You've, you long for his return. Life is difficult. You fail. Others fail you. Life seems somewhat hostile at times. But the gift of Jesus is within you already. You have been given the Holy Spirit. Steward that well. Nurture that relationship. Spend time with him. Allow him to be the internal pressure that pushes out against life. Growing the gift that he's left within you. And give it back with interest when he returns. Share him with others, both in word and deed. Because you are called to that. And don't grow weary of doing ministry. Go back to the cross and all it means to you today, eat and drink and draw encouragement from his sacrifice. He summons us, all of us as believers, to be a loving, missional witness of peace and reconciliation with God to all the peoples of the world. To be joyful in emulating his sacrifice, becoming an encouragement and a part of communal vision which, he, which changes lives. Jesus has visited us and through us he visits the main line. Extending his gift through us, so to speak. And your witness sets the stage for others to receive his gift of sacrifice. He resides in the temple of people, healing and loving and forgiving and caring for others through his people. The body of Christ, of which he is the head. So you are the temple of God. And as we give our time and talents and treasures, it's a clear sign that you get it, right? And believe in what Jesus is doing through this local church. We know good works is not it. It's not, it's not good enough to earn your salvation. You can't earn it that way. It begins only with recognizing, like Israel in Egypt, that the angel of death has passed over us because of the blood of the perfect sacrifice. Jesus covers our sin. And when we do, when we realize that, all that we are is offered to him. We don't pick and choose only the things that we like, the choicest parts of the meal, only the verses that talk about love and grace and mercy. We're servants through and through, as was he. It's possible 
that some of us still choose to give only 10% of our lives, 50% of our lives, or even 90% of our lives. But as king and as Lord of the universe, Jesus demands all because he gave all. We will always need to fight against our shallowness to give 100% as we move forward, affecting all the people around us within our sphere of influence. We want to grow our church. Since the heart of Jesus is always missional, it's always invitational. More people to be able to, to experience the gift of reconciliation with God through Christ. So we end today celebrating God's visitation in Jesus. We see it, we want it, and that should create a desire in us to emulate him to others, to take him to others. And like that old woman who Jesus recognized out of her poverty, gave everything that she had to live on, let's be the local church which lives worthy of the calling that we have received, giving all that we have to him. Being the hands and feet and voice of Jesus, living as he did and manifesting him to others. The church who utilized its resources while the king was away. The church who gets it. The church who opened the gift and found the check and handed it back to the father and said, you are enough for me. I only want all of you. We mourn before we celebrate. We experience darkness before we see light. We know our sinfulness to know our salvation. And that, if you get to that point in life, it makes worship passionate, it makes it full of integrity and full of gratitude, which is attractive to others as we are surrounded by a dishonest, cold, and selfish world full of war, full of vitriol, full of craziness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you speak. We thank you for your revealed word to us. We thank you for the story. We pray that this morning that you would give us eyes to see that all of history is authored by you. That this is the real reality. All the other garbage we hear out there is not the real reality. But we have a God who created us, who loved us, who called us very good, and is pursuing reconciliation with us in the most dramatic way possible. And we pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear that story maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, but always fresh and always new to all of us. And we pray that it would make a change in us. It would transform us and move us more deeply into the ministry of reconciliation that you've called us all to. In Christ's name we pray, amen.